pray. Heavenly Father, please open our hearts and minds to receive from your word, and by your spirit, change us, uh, that we might be more and more kingdom-first people. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. When my daughter was four years old, my wife was pregnant with our son. And she asked me one day, said, Daddy, where do babies come from? And I immediately looked around for her mother. (laughs) Unfortunately, she was at work. So I thought for a moment and I said, well, baby comes from mommy's belly. And she said, yes, I know that, Daddy. How did the baby get in there? And I just kind of sat there. What in the world do I say to this? And I sat and I'm thinking, I'm thinking, she goes, oh, so you don't know either. (laughs) I guess I'll ask mom when she gets home. You know, what my struggle was is she didn't have the background. Like, I, 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 I'm not even sure where to start to explain this. I mean, honestly, the stork sounded really good at that point. But, like, I can't. I mean, there's all this stuff about the body and biology, and there's this whole background. It's like, how do I explain to my four-year-old the question she's trying to get the answer to when I don't have the background. Last week, I introduced the idea of a kingdom-first life. In order to really dive into that, to explore it, to understand it, to live into it, there's a background. And, and, and I think you got a glimpse of that last week as we looked at that one passage in Mark where what the disciples heard as Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God and what we hear when we hear the gospel, that word, was not the same thing. There was a background missing. And so from now until Advent, we're gonna be in the Old Testament. We're gonna study that background. What is the story of the people of Israel that has become our story What's the story of God's people that led into this idea of the kingdom of God? How did they hear it? How did they understand it? And we're going to hit these key passages for 12 weeks that show that story. God and his people. And then when we hit Advent, we'll be right there for the birth of Christ. And then we'll continue past Advent right up to Lent and the crucifixion to Easter and the resurrection. Now, we're going to miss a lot. Because that's not a lot of weeks to do the entire Bible. But, but we're going to follow the seasons and we're going to see the story of God, his people, and the kingdom. And we're going to start this morning in the back. Genesis chapter 2. And we're going to start in a section of Genesis 2 that I think is rarely taught on, thought on, 
Um, Genesis chapter 1 is taught a lot. You got creation. Genesis chapter 3 is taught a lot because you have the fall. Part of Genesis 2 is taught a lot because you have the creation of man, the creation of woman. But I want to go right to the beginning. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This morning, I want to talk about day seven. And and I want to answer some questions about day seven. Because here's one thought on day seven. God stopped. He rested. He sat down on the couch, and he was done. Chapter one is where like all the work is being done. It's almost like if somebody were to say to you, and you've probably had this happen, hey, what'd you do yesterday? And you go, what? I didn't really do anything. I just kind of laid around the house. I didn't really do much. And usually the response is, oh, that's awesome. That's good for you because we're all so busy that to actually have a day where you don't do anything is considered a really good thing. If you were to ask God, hey, God, so what'd you do on that seventh day? What would his response be? Would his response be, not much. I just kicked back. I mean, I'd, I'd done everything already. I was taking a break. I was tired. I took a little rest. Or would it be something else? And here's your first indication that it's something else. Look back at the text and go to verse 3. So God blessed the seventh day. No other days are blessed. Only this day. And here's what's interesting about that word. That word essentially means at its roots, God's favor being given to somebody so that they have the power and the potency to accomplish something. First time we see it is after the creation of man. Right after that, he blesses them so they can do what he's called them to do. They can multiply and they can rule over the earth. Seems kind of a strange thing to say about a day of rest. Here's a day of power and potency where I do nothing. You know, it's like going to bed really, really early, getting up, eating a power breakfast so that you were set, and then you sit down on the couch all day and watch TV. Does that feel a little like a waste? But this day of all days is blessed. And then something else happens. Keep going. And made it holy. This is the first thing in all creation to be made holy. Nothing before this is. Go through all six days. Not the planets, not the animals, not even us are made holy. This day is made holy. This day is set apart And it uses that religious word of holiness to do it. Something is going on on day seven that is more than God sat down and took a break. Because it's on this day that he blesses and makes holy. And then you see the reason. Because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The reason that he does this is because he rested. 
What does that word mean? Because it's the key to this whole day. What does that word rest mean? Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. Absolutely doesn't mean this. God was not exhausted and just needed a break. God didn't work so hard spinning the universe into existence that by finally the time he got to day seven, he went, oh, God, finally. I'm just so wiped. That's not the rest of it. Right? The word, just without any connotation, right, the word itself means to cease. It means he stopped. Right? And it's tied into his work The reason that he ceased is because all the work was done. There was no work left to do. However, and here's where background starts coming in. In their culture, they would have seen a picture here that is really hard for us to see. Because we don't have it. We have some analogies, and I'll share one with you later. But even our analogy would not point you in the exact same direction that this would have pointed them. So we're going to back up a little bit. All right, first six days, this is what happens. God does two things. He forms and he fills. On days one through three of creation, he is forming that which is formless. If you go back to the beginning of Genesis 1, the earth is void and without form. Days one through three, he is forming that. He's giving it shape. He's making something. Days four through six, he takes what is void and he fills it up. He takes those areas that he shaped and he puts things in them. And then he gets to day seven. Now, each one of those days ends with this. And it was good. And that good is not a moral judgment. It's not God saying, okay, I've formed the seas and now they're holy or something. When he says good, it means he has taken the darkness and the chaos that was there in the beginning and he has given it form as it should be. It is whole, it is right, it is ordered. It's exactly what God wants it to be. The big Hebrew term that takes all of this into account, and you've heard it if you've been at redemption any length of time, shalom. When he says, it is good, and this 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 is good, those are all evaluations of they are exactly as they should be. I have formed them and filled them, and everything is working just as I want it to. It is perfectly and beautifully ordered. And then you get to day seven, and he rests. Now, here's the part we just have no background for. In other ancient cultures of the time, when a god was resting, that wasn't a, oh, finally, you people wear me out. That was, I have completed my work, and now I am being enthroned over it. I have finished what I am doing I have brought, I've taken chaos and I've brought order. I've taken darkness and I've brought light. I have done my work and now when I say rest, I am ceasing to be enthroned over it. 
Think of the picture like this. You may have had this experience where you have done a giant landscaping job in your yard. Anybody done that? Like it may have taken you days or weeks because you really, I mean, you're doing flower beds and you're doing gardens and you may have put in like a fountain and all of these things to make this beautiful yard. What do you do when it's all done? You rest to enjoy what you have created. And there's this moment, and I've had this moment, where you pull out your throne-like lawn chair and you sit down as king of your backyard because it's done and it is beautiful and it is by your hands and it's what you wanted. That is what God is doing. This is not a I'm tired and I'm resting and I'm done. This is not a God saying, this is not like deism, like, oh, I finally finished all that work, now I'm kicking back. And I'm just gonna see what happens with it. This is a very different picture. This is a picture of God forming all of this, the universe, the heavens and the earth. And then on the seventh day, he ceases from that work to be enthroned over it. I am the king of all that I have created. And the image goes further, both in the culture, in the context, and throughout scripture. Here's the place that those gods rested. And it's the only place, really. You can look at all of these various ancient cultures. They all, gods all rested in a certain place. Their temple. That's where they rested. And amazingly enough, you can read stories where these temples they're building for these gods, they actually take seven days to build. Now, they didn't. But that's the story. Right? They give it the seven-day period where they build this temple, they fill the temple up, and then the God rests in the temple, enthroned over his people from the temple. There is some fascinating language in Genesis 1 and 2 that not only fits that picture, but you can see it in other parts of scripture. I'm just gonna give you a couple things, a couple indications that when they're seeing this, that the building of heaven and earth should be seen not as God building this universe for us, but as God building his temple, heaven and earth together, for him, where he takes his place in it. There's little indications throughout the text. Day four, when he takes the lights What we would know is the sun and the moon and the stars, which are not called that. And they're not called that partly because those were actually considered gods in the ancient world. That language is avoided in creation. But they are called lights. What's interesting about that word is it's used 19 times in the Old Testament. 15 of them are to describe the light from the lampstand in the tabernacle. They are the holy light within God's makeshift temple that give light to the holy place. That's what that light is in almost all of its uses. Adam and Eve, they're given, well, it's really just Adam in chapter two, and he's given two things he's supposed to do, to work and to keep this garden that he's placed in. Those two words 
Number one, work is never used to refer to the land, the actual land, without the object dirt with it. Most often that word work without that object, well always without the object, is used to work for Yahweh. It's a religious service. That word keep, that word is used almost all the time to refer to one of two things, guarding what is God's or keeping his commandments. They are not agricultural terms. More often than not, they are religious terms in one's relationship to God, which is an odd way to describe your work in the garden, unless there's something a whole lot more going on here than just making land. And after the fall, what is part of the curse? To till the land, to have to work it. But this is pre-fall. Finally, this day is made holy. That's a religious term. The day itself. What is happening on this day? Start looking through the rest of scripture. You will see things like God's throne in heaven and his footstool on earth. That's a unified unit. That's where God is existing. You can look at Psalm 132 where God takes his rest in Zion. And in the context of that, Zion is either Jerusalem or more specifically the temple in Jerusalem where his presence dwelled in his people's lives. In Psalm, the, the Psalm we're reading, Psalm 78, we're gonna get to a verse where it says, God patterned the sanctuary, what he builds, his temple, after the heavens and the earth. How do you pattern a sanctuary after the universe unless the universe was first made to be God's temple? God created the universe as his temple and then he was enthroned in it. What does that mean for us? What did that mean for them? If you have that picture in your head, what do I do with that? Because I will tell you, it greatly impacts the way in which the Israelites lived. All that I'm about to tell you, it is not just intellectual knowledge. It is the way in which that knowledge was a way of life. I think of this. I, I once read a Jewish writer who said this. Judaism is not a belief system. That's a Christian way of thinking of things. Judaism, the Jewish way, it's a way of life. It's not a bunch of things we just think about and kind of go back and forth and have discussions about. It is a way of living so that the knowledge that we're about to talk about, it impacted how they lived, how they saw themselves, how they identified themselves, how they understood God and the world. And it meant something to their actual everyday existence. So if from the beginning, God created this universe as his temple, and on day seven, he rests as enthroned on the, on, on, as king over all of it, what does that mean for us? Number one, this whole thing, including, hear this, 
including your life, is not first and foremost about you, but about him. See, we have this idea, I think, that because on day six, man is created as the pinnacle of creation, we're created in the image of God, there's all this wonderful thing and we're kind of raised up, that somehow we take center stage. We don't take center stage. We were part of creation. We may have a special place in creation, but we are part of the creation. He created it for him. Here's, there's this great quote. There's a book by David Wells called No More Truth. And here's, here's a quote from it. And, and I think this quote begins to speak to the way that our culture and even Christianity has made a shift in our priorities, in what we see as central, primary, important. Listen to his quote. The biblical interest in righteousness is replaced by a search for happiness. Truth is replaced by feeling. Ethics are replaced by feeling good about oneself. With that, the world shrinks to the range of my personal circumstances. The community of faith shrinks to a circle of personal friends. The past recedes, the church recedes, the world recedes, and all that remains is the self. Does that sound like our culture? Question is, how much does it sound like us? Where self is really, honestly, what we're going for first. That we think about my salvation, my church, my happiness, what I want and deserve, instead of first, what does he want? What's he calling my life to? Because in creation, we get a picture of Almighty God who makes it for him, not us. And it starts with him, not us. In the church, and we've said this before, but it bears saying one more time in this context. Far too many people go to church for the wrong reasons. They go to church for what they get out of it. Now, is there anything wrong with getting something out of church? No, not at all. We work hard, honestly, we work hard to make the music good. Every week, a lot of time is put into the sermon no matter who is preaching. We practice readings. We practice transitions of things. We want you to come to church and go, I love this music. We want you to come to church and go, I got something out of that message. We want you to come to church and go home and think, I've been changed because of this. But it is not primarily about any of that. We don't come here for us. You don't get out of, morning, out of bed in the morning, force yourself to church primarily for you, because if you do, 
I guarantee you, you will not be here all the time. I guarantee you, you're gonna leave redemption at some point to go find someplace else. We come here for him. Our service is centered around him. Him first. We gather together to go, you are amazing. You are the mighty fortress. You are our God. And we are here as your subjects. Not demanding that you please our feelings. Not demanding that we have to always get something out of this because that's not the point. It's like going to your child's soccer game. If you go primarily for your entertainment, at some point you're gonna stop going, especially if you have a young child. Do you know how frustrating it is to watch your child walk around picking flowers while the ball is being kicked at them? Watching a team that never scores? If you're going primarily for your entertainment, at some point you're either gonna go, sorry, I'm pulling you. Like, I'm bored with this. That's not why we go. We go for them. We go to support them. We go to love them. That's why we're here. He is first, not us. He is. Now, one way that we apply that, right? The Sabbath. Let me talk to you for just a minute about the Sabbath. I have throughout my Christian walk kept it at times, but more often than not have not. Right. Let me tell you what the Sabbath is not. The Sabbath is not just, I need a power nap, so I'm gonna get one. The Sabbath is not, oh, finally have an excuse not to do my work. The Sabbath is also not, oh, if I don't do this, I'm a terrible, awful, horrible person. The Sabbath starts with God being enthroned. So think about that. If that's its origin, what does it mean when we do it? Number one, we stop focusing on our work and we focus on his. Number two, which I know I already have two up because I kind of made two. Number two, we recognize his sovereignty. We recognize that even time is a gift. We recognize that God is the God of this world. He is the one that in the beginning brought order and peace and shalom into life. And think about this. How many of you have more to do than what you think you can do? Anybody there? How many of you feel like your schedule is so booked up and you think, there is no way I could actually take a break, like I could stop? That's part of the point. Do you know in exercising the Sabbath, you are actually exercising faith that God is in control? Where you take all the stuff that rightfully you may have to do, and you go, I'm gonna trust the creator of the universe. And I'm gonna take this time to reset and to focus on, and the 10 commandments that are given in Deuteronomy, the Sabbath is connected to the Exodus. He wants them to remember that he is Yahweh who brought them out of the Exodus. It is a moment of resetting us and focusing on him and what he has done, not on what we've accomplished. 
on what he's accomplished. But it's like it may cost you something to do that. I saw this beautiful story. Um, Sam Kendrick is a pole vaulter. And in the Olympics, he's also a second lieutenant in the Army. In the Olympics, during a qualifying round, you know how in this gymnasium there's all this stuff going on at once and you're just one of the acts? He's in a qualifying round. He has got his pole. And he is running in a qualifying round. And the national anthem starts playing. He stops immediately, drops his pole, and does this. And stands for the entire national anthem. It is one of the craziest videos. Go look at it on YouTube. That is what it means to recognize God as creator above all other things. As he is running for his qualifying round, stops, drops his pole, doesn't matter who is looking or what's going on, and he stands at attention for the entire national anthem because of his respect for our country symbolized in that anthem. The Sabbath is something like that. It is a walking through our lives with all of our stuff and all of our business and everything that needs to be done and rightfully so, and then dropping it for a moment and standing at attention before our God and remembering that it's about him, not us. Remembering what he has done. Remembering that he is king even over all the busyness in my life. A second thing that Israel got from this was hope. Hope. It amazes me at times. I, I would challenge you to go spend some time reading the Psalms. Israel's prayers to their God. And just read how they will say over and over and over again, trust in Yahweh, he is our shield and our strength. Trust in Yahweh, he is our salvation. That is a crazy thing to be saying if you are those people. Because if you look at their lives, they are constantly being conquered by somebody. They're being taken into exile, they're being taken into slavery. They're called smaller than other nations. They're never the biggest kingdom. How is it that they don't at some point just give up? How is it that at some point with all the things going on, they eventually just don't go, all right, we got the wrong God. I mean, if you look at our life, it's just a mess. Like we keep having all these bad things happen. All these other people seem to be successful when we're not. Why at some point do they not just go, I'm done, I'm going after this guy over here. Now they did that a lot actually. But they always, always came back. And they always kept saying, no matter what their circumstances, no matter what it looked like, trust in Yahweh. Why? Because they had the creator God. It didn't matter how big their peoples were. It didn't matter the successes that Baal gave this, these people over here or the God of the, the rain gave these people over here. When it came down to it, they were the people of Yahweh, the creator God who is enthroned over his universe. And it was part of them. It wasn't just this idea that they would have talks about, but it was part of their identity. Like, we are the people of the creator God. If that is true, there is always hope. There is always 
going to be the possibility that God, our shield, will come through. There was hope in this because it was a part of them. And lastly, number three. In the ancient world, when the temple was built, there was always something placed in the temple. An icon, an image of the God was placed in the temple because that's how the God worked in this world. Why did they have these icons? Why were they praying to these icons? Because those icons represented the God, not physically, but they represented the God's presence and the way in which the God would work through the world. And so you're praying to this icon so that the power of the God would come through into your life. There were always icons, images placed in the temples. Now, Yahweh strictly forbid his people to ever make an icon. Don't ever do this, right? But Yahweh also placed an image in his temple. That is what is happening on day six. You and I are the image. You and I as the image of God were placed there to represent him. Think about what the assignment was. I want you to fill up my world, and I want you to reign over it. In his place, he didn't abdicate the throne. When he made us in his image, he didn't go, okay, here's my throne, you guys just go for it, you're in charge. We were ruling in his place. We were supposed to bring God to other people. We were his image. Do you know how amazing that is? Okay, if everything we've said so far is true, just think about it. We have the almighty creator of the universe who made the world, made the heavens, made the earth, made it for himself, sat down as enthroned over it, and then said, Tim, I want you to represent me. What kind of honor is that? What kind of responsibility? How scary is that? How beautiful is that? That we're made in his image to represent him, to bring God to other people. And what are we bringing? What did our God do? In the beginning, it was without form and it was void. And there was darkness over the face of the deep. There was chaos. And our God brought order and beauty, shalom to the world. Now he says, I want you to be my representatives and go into the world. What do you think we're supposed to do? Bring that same thing into the lives of our families, to the lives of the people around us, our community, our world. Do you know that when you're sitting in your home, and your next door neighbor pulls up and you know they need something. And you think to yourself, you know what, I should go over there, but God, I got a lot to do. And you go, fine, I guess I'll go over there and I'll do something for them. You could do it that way if you want. All it will do is make you bitter and hardened and eventually you'll stop doing it. Or you can go, I have an opportunity to be God for somebody else.
to show them the peace, the love, to show them something of who I serve. You, I, we have that chance because we are made in his image, called to represent him to the world. A friend of mine posted this on Facebook. Um, some of you know him. I'm not gonna use his name because I didn't ask his permission to use this story. But it's on Facebook, so I should be able to do it, but I'm still gonna try and respect it. His six-year-old daughter, over the summer, he was prepping her for school, and so began going over certain things, and one day he wanted to go over money and, and get her thinking about different denominations, and so he pulls out a quarter, a dime, a nickel, and a penny. And he's talking about how much they're worth. And at some point, she asks the question, who are those faces? And so he takes the quarter, and he's walking through each one of them. And he's saying, you know, this is the president who did this. And he's kind of a history buff himself. And he said, as he gets done with the nickel, his daughter was just kind of excited. And he's like, yeah, you know, she loves history. And he's all excited about it. But then he pulls out the penny. And he says, and, and this is Lincoln. And Lincoln, and then he stops as he starts thinking, much like I was at the beginning, how do I explain this to my six-year-old daughter? And so he begins to explain to her the best that he can, slavery, the Emancipation Proclamation, and all of those things. And he can tell as he's telling her the story that she's getting a little bit upset. And eventually he stops and he's like, you know, are you okay? And he's like, no, I'm mad, she says. And he goes, and he's thinking, okay, well, I gotta explain this better to her. She's not quite getting it. And, and he starts, and he goes, no, she says, stop. No, I'm mad. I need to call somebody up. I need to tell somebody that the penny needs to change because he deserves more than one cent. This guy who did so much, he deserves more than one cent to be represented. How much of our lives does God deserve to represent him? Because that's an image right there. Representing a great man who did a great number of things. We represent an even greater God. How much of our lives does he deserve to have represent him? God made the universe, it's foundational for the story. But he didn't just make it, he made it for himself and he put us in it. And while he sat enthroned over all of it, reminding us that it's about him more than us, reminding us that if it's true that he did this, there is a hope that we have no matter what. And then saying, you are my representatives. Go into my creation and bring me to people. We have something amazing to live out. Will we live it together? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our King, Lord, help us to strip away the ways that we see you that are not true. Help us to strip away the, the, the focus on self that sometimes dominates our decisions and the way that we live. 
Lord, that we might get rightly aligned with you as our king. Lord, we love you, we acknowledge you, we submit to you. In Jesus' holy name, amen.